This morning's scripture is taken from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, what glorious words in your scripture today. They remind us that every word that comes from your mouth is good and pure and perfect, edifying, that requires our full attention, that requires our response, our obedience. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us by your grace what we need to hear your word today, and that is ears to hear, a heart that is pliable, a mind that will consider and will allow your words to be pressed in firmly, that we might become more and more conformed to the image of Christ, the Word of God, the perfect expression of you. Father, help me as I preach this text today, to preach it without error or confusion, to preach with clarity. And Father, to preach your Word and not mine, purify what is said today, for your people, and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, today we return to the solas, and we're going to turn to the fourth sola in our total of five, which is grace alone. Grace alone, we are dealing with fourth, because I believe it fits best in, in, in following our discussion of faith to understand how complete is God's grace in the gospel message of salvation. But I want to remind us of the series that we are in. It's called First Things, and the idea of it is this is our constitution. As we go back and start a ministry together, it is essential that we are grounded in those truths that must define us and must govern us in all that we do. The five solas, which were popularized or rediscovered in the Reformation, are really the five solas of the gospel itself. The gospel that we preach is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in accordance with the scriptures alone, and all to the glory of God alone. These are our marching orders. This is the message that we preach as a gospel-centered church. And if we depart from that, we become unconstitutional, and we must reform our ways immediately. So as we turn to grace alone, grace alone is the teaching that all of our salvation, from beginning to end, is the free gift of God. 
For Luther, one of the chief reformers, this was the teaching that was the hinge for which the whole gospel turned. If we mistake or err in what it means to be saved by grace alone, the entire gospel that we preach will drift away from its biblical truth and its biblical reality. I think, as I reflect on the solas, that grace alone is probably the one sola that the church most needs to reground itself in. This is the sola that is probably the most foreign to us. It is the one that is the hardest for us to hold on to because by definition, it's not ours to hold on to. It is a gift. And so grace alone is the thing that seems to fade or lose definition when a church begins to drift from its gospel-centeredness. And that is why we must focus on grace alone here at the beginning. When I was in seminary, I had a very brief conversation with somebody. It was just, just in the hallways. It was a person after uh, Christmas break. He had come back from a short-term mission trip. And this conversation I had has always kind of hung in my mind, has, has been provocative to me. He told me that he went to some nation in Africa. He was an American. He didn't speak any of the language. He was, you know, he was white, didn't fit in with anybody. He stuck out. And he went on a short-term mission trip, and he ran across on a, on a beaten path a, a, a native, somebody who was living there, an African man who was in his middle years, probably in his 50s or 60s. And he had a gospel track with him. My friend did. And he shared that gospel track. It was a two-language gospel track. But you can imagine how clumsy this whole encounter is. We have a native African and, a, and a, an American speaking two different languages from two completely different worlds and circumstances. And all we have is this flimsy piece of paper with some Bible verses on it. And he wants to share the gospel with this man. And in this very broken conversation where only snips of English were known by the African man and none of the language was, uh, of the other person was known by my friend, they go through this gospel track. And this African man, going through it, begins to weep just begins to cry. And the, the, the friend of mine is like, wow, this, this is going really well. And it became discovered as the man uh, spoke back to him. He said, I have believed this message for 20 years. I have been a Christian for 20 years. But every time I hear it, it fills my eyes with tears. And that has been amazing to me because of all of the brokenness in that communication system and all of the you know, clumsiness of sharing that gospel in that situation, that the purity and the beauty of that gospel still rang so true in that man's ears that it brought him to tears. And I think as I, as I listen to that, my amazement... Because who still gets that moved about the gospel from some little tract 20 years into their faith? Who gets so moved by tears that they hear a, a clumsy gospel tract and they cry? What I see happening for most people is an initial excitement about the gospel where they, where they, they understand it for the first time 
But then over the months and years, they calm back down. They slot that gospel somewhere into their lives, some compartment where that belongs. And then they start living a life with, amongst their neighbors, amongst their coworkers, that for all intents and purposes looks about the same. They are a Christian, but their life has settled down. The gospel has found its place, and the life of that person seems rather ordinary at that point forward. Have, have you seen that happen? Have you seen the gospel just kind of become domesticated? Have you experienced some of that in your own life? The thrill of it just kind of seeping out. I struggle with this. I, I, I look at the gospel and I ask myself, am I as amazed with the gospel today as when I first believed? And most days I have to say, no. And I say that with anger that that is true. But I do struggle. Why does the gospel seem to move away from excitement in so many of our lives? But when I look at the reformers, I see these ministers, Calvin and Luther and others, and I see their ministries of 30 or 40 years being filled with sustained passion for the gospel, that their dying breath is just as excited about preaching the good news of Jesus Christ as when they first believed. And I look at the fact that we are celebrating the 500th year of the reformers, and we are still living in the aftershocks of the gospel that they preached. The world is shaped by the fact that their faith was amazed from their first breath to their last breath with the gospel. And then I go back even further and I look at the book of Acts and you see these peasant, uneducated people move this message from the deserts of Judea to the ends of the Roman Empire going through prisons and scourgings and persecutions and all kinds of hungers and famines and shipwrecks. And they get all the way across the Roman Empire and their reputation is these men are turning the world upside down. What's the difference? What's the difference between them and so many of us? Did these people have a different gospel? What does this African man, what do these reformers, what do these first Christians have that's, that we seem to lack? I believe the answer is to be found in, the gospel, in, 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 the, in, in grace alone, in understanding the teaching of grace alone. Grace alone is the teaching that keeps us from treating the gospel as an afterlife insurance policy. It is the teaching that keeps the gospel from being something that we take on on our own terms. It is the teaching, the truth, that keeps the gospel from being compartmentalized in our life. And so if those things are true of our faith, then we have yet to grasp grace alone. Grace alone is the teaching that makes the gospel amazing, and it is what makes us into world-changing Christians. This is because the power of God's grace is the only power that can save the world. And when we become claimed by it, we become undimmable beacons 
of its truth. Grasping the grace of the gospel will break down barriers in your own heart. It will break down barriers in your own life. It will break down barriers in the world that you look out and see the need to save. Grace alone sets us free because it makes us completely creatures of God's grace and nothing else. And nothing else. That's the war. We want to be saved by grace alone, but we want something else for us too. Would you like to reclaim your passion for the gospel? Today's text shows us exactly the three things we need to grasp about salvation by grace alone to ignite our faith afresh. Our text is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where Paul sets forth the glorious mystery of the gospel to a group of churches in Asia Minor. He wanted them to grasp how great is God's grace toward them in Christ. In our text today, he shows us the three elements of what it means to be saved by grace alone. Let us now look at this text and look at these three elements of what it means to be saved by grace alone. First, salvation by grace alone means this. We are doomed in ourselves. We are doomed in ourselves. Again, let us hear the words of Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses. Paul writes, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In grasping grace alone, Paul wants to establish, first of all, very clearly, we are doomed in ourselves. There are three reasons that we are doomed in ourselves as we look at these verses. First, we are doomed in ourselves because we are spiritually dead. Now notice that this is universal. Everyone is included in this condition. Verse 1 says, you, speaking to Paul's audience. But in verse 3, Paul says, we all, including Paul himself. And also in verse 3, he says, as is the case for the rest of mankind. If you do not fit in you, or we, or the rest of mankind, somehow you're on the wrong planet. (laughs) But I believe that you fit that description. So these words are Paul's description of you, of me, of all of us. He says first that we are dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So what sort of death is Paul talking about? When Paul uses the word death, is he just being dramatic? Is he just hyping a term, hyperbole? Does he, does he, does he mean mostly dead? Or is it dead? Well, I think we need to do some investigation. Paul recognizes that there are two kinds of death. There is spiritual death, the part of the soul, and there is physical death. And these two are closely related. If we look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we are told this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
we see here that Paul understands physical death as a result of sin, but he also recognizes spiritual death as an outcome of sin. He has in his mind the story of Genesis chapter 2 and 3, where God put Adam and Eve in the garden and he gave them one rule not to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And that in chapter 3, they eat of that forbidden fruit. And God comes to them and he does declare a death sentence that Adam and Eve will return to death. But also on that very day in which they sinned, they were taken out of the Garden of Eden, they were removed from the tree of life, and barred from ever returning. What we see there is that the first death that Adam and Eve experienced was separation from a spiritual connection with God. They had spiritual death. And that spiritual death eventually takes the form of physical death. We die physically because we are already dead spiritually. So the two have a very close connection. Physical death is a result of our spiritual death. Thus, what is true of physical death is first true of spiritual death. And what does death mean? Well, if I were to have a body that is dead here, you would see that it lacks any ability to act or respond to the world it belongs to. A dead body will not respond with ouch if you poke it. It will not stop itself from falling. It will respond to absolutely nothing in the physical world because it is dead. The same is true of spiritual death. Our souls will respond to absolutely nothing in the spiritual world because they are like a dead body. They cannot respond. They are dead to spiritual things. Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul is saying that spiritual death means you have no ability to respond to spiritual things. The Spirit of God is something that you cannot respond to by yourself because you are spiritually dead to spiritual things. Jesus makes this exact same claim in the Gospel of John where he says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. When Jesus says someone has to be born again, there has to be a new life birthed into that person. And that person without the Spirit being in, brought into that life is incapable of entering the kingdom of God. The spiritual life of the person must be made alive because by default it is dead. So just as we cannot bring physical life back by ourselves, we could not say to this dead body, drink some water. We cannot say to a spiritually dead person, respond to the gospel. Because that is a spiritual thing, that they have to have a spiritual life to respond to. Dead means dead. 
Salvation is not a life preserver that we grab. The metaphor that there's a life preserver out there and you're about to drown, so grab hold of it, does not come from Scripture. The truth is, we have drowned. We're at the bottom. We are lifeless. A life preserver is not enough. Now some object to this statement. Some object to the the finality of this whole idea because if that's true, salvation is impossible for us. How can anyone possibly be saved if we don't even have the ability to respond to the gospel? And I would say you are exactly right. Salvation is impossible for man. But it is not impossible for God. And you have to make that leap to understand the gospel. We are doomed in ourselves because we are submitted to the power of sin, both within and without. Paul describes our dead selves as basically being under the custody of three undertakers. One, he says, we follow the sinful ways of the world, the course of this world. You live in this world and we are experiencing a constant undertow towards rebellion, sinfulness, and filth. I could give you many examples, but perhaps one that's most easily at hand is to look at the way that we rate movies today versus the way we rated movies just 25 years ago. Movies that are rated R in 1985 are PG-13 today. There is a constant drift of how much filth and corruption and contamination we consider to be baseline normal. Because the world continues to drift into more and more deviancy and more and more filth. In fact, we can't even sense it. We've already been caught in that wave. I can't imagine when we stand in heaven in the righteousness of Christ how much blindness we will have been exposed to that we just accept it as normal. I believe if we were to bring Jonathan Edwards into the room and say, you just kind of abide by that, he'd be shocked. Not because he didn't have the undertow of the world in his day, but because that undertow has just crept so much further. So that's the first undertaker. The second undertaker, he says, we are under the power of Satan. He says that there is the power of the spirit of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Perhaps the greatest victory of Satan in this country is to question that he even exists. The whole goal of Satan is to make you stay separated from spiritual truth. And so if making him something that you don't see or discern helps you disbelieve the entire spiritual reality, then he will stay hidden. He will leave himself incognito. But can we really say with confidence that there is not a great, malevolent spiritual force in this world? Study World War II. Study the ovens and the concentration camps and the way that this entire idea of mass extermination of the Jewish people became just so fine for Germans. And tell me that that is not evidence of a powerful spiritual force darkening people beyond anyone's imagination. I cannot deny the reality of Satan looking at the the world and the track record behind us. 
And third, undertaker, is we are enslaved by our depraved nature. Paul says that the passions of our flesh carry out the desires of our body and mind. One of the greatest deceptions that we live in is that we think that we have, yeah, a lot of sin, but that we are still able to, to, um, to resist and to, to make good decisions. And I guess to a certain extent we can make wise decisions on earth, but if the mind is absolutely cut off from God, cut off from serving God, if it questions the reality of God, then nothing it can do can truly be given to God in glory because you must believe he exists to give him any glory at all. And so if every action, good or bad, that we do in this world does not, is not designed to give glory to God, it starts sinful. It is stained with sin. And so Paul tells us that both the body and the mind are captured by these uh, sinful desires and passions. He says it even more clearly in, in Romans. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Can not. Not really difficult, but it's can not. The mind of a fallen person cannot please God, cannot submit to God. We are consumed with self. We are the captain of our own lives. That is the way that we conduct ourselves. And see the, 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 the third way that we are doomed here. We are doomed in ourselves because judgment is unavoidable. Paul says that by nature we are children of wrath. By nature. Not we happened into, not we send our way towards this. Not we made a mistake on the, on the college campus that put us under wrath. We are by nature children of wrath. That is what we are fundamentally. That is where we start. That's what we are born into. This is our natural state. We are not sinners, according to the Bible, because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are a fallen race. The prophet Jeremiah says that it is as easy for a, a uh, leopard to change its spots as it is for a person with a sinful nature to stop sinning. In Genesis, in the eighth chapter after the flood, after Every sinful person except for Noah was removed. God still looked at humanity and said, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. There is a bend towards evil that is ours from the very beginning. We sin because we are sinners. Now we can hate this truth. We can absolutely not want that truth. But I ask any one of you, can you point to an exception? Can you point to a sinless person? Can you point to someone who walks righteously all the time? Can you point to yourself as not consumed with a mind that wants to sin? Can you point to a sinless life in yourself? If we can't find an exception... 
Perhaps the scriptures are true. We are by nature children of wrath. Now, wrath, Paul, Paul's decided to put in all the words right up front that make it so easy to preach. Wrath sounds harsh. To hate, that sounds harsh. We're not to hate. Except that if you love something, you automatically hate what opposes it. If you love LSU, do you love Alabama? No. (laughs) If you love children, you hate child abuse. If you love humanity, you hate racism. These things uh, are just the fact of loving something is to hate what threatens it. And so if you are God and you love holiness, you love righteousness, you love justice, you must be strongly opposed to injustice, to unrighteousness, to rebellion. To not be that way would be to not be God, to not truly uphold the good. And so God must be opposed in the most strongest terms to sin. What do lawbreakers deserve? They deserve punishment. They deserve judgment. And so as we finish this first thing that we must understand, to understand grace alone, we must be very clear. No one warrants God's favor. No one deserves God's blessing. All that we can say that we should expect from God is judgment. That is the bad news. It is impossible for man to save himself. But there is good news. Salvation by grace alone doesn't just mean that we are doomed in ourselves. It means, secondly, that we are saved entirely by God's will. We are saved entirely by God's will. Verses 4 through 7 say this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We are saved entirely by God's will. The motivation for our salvation is God's goodness alone. These words, but God, are startling and beautiful. After the undertakers have put us in the ground and the dirt is over our coffin, we are told, but God, and there is now hope. But God. 1 John 4.10 says the same thing. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The motivation for our salvation is God's goodness alone. This is the good news, but God. Only God can save us, and remarkably, he has chosen to do so. Why? Why has God chosen to save us? We ought to trip on that question 
if we really take verses 1 through 3 to heart? Has he saved us because heaven wouldn't be heaven without us? No. No, we are saved because God is moved by his mercy and his love. Nothing else. He is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. What this means is that there is no leverage that you have to get God to save you. There is no offering that you can bring that God will say, well, that would be nice to have. Maybe I'll let you in on on that. There is no potential in us that he sees and says, well, I think if you had a second chance, you'd really make this place shine. These are not the things that God uses to save us. We are not pound puppies that God walks by and says, well, I, I just, it's just so cuddly. I just have to have one. The scripture described us as a brood of vipers. Have you ever walked by a viper nest and thought anything but get an exterminator? And yet, even though that is the reality, we are more a brood of vipers than we are a pound full of puppies. God still determines to love us because what moves him to love us is because he loves. That is his nature. That is not something that we excite him to do. That is what he is. He is a God who has mercy. The energy for our salvation is God's power alone. Even, Paul says, when we were dead, he took what was dead and made it alive. This happens entirely by God's work. A dead body does not revive itself. But perhaps for a time, a doctor with some special equipment can put the spark of life back into it. But that dead body does not say, I really helped you there. No, it happens to the body. And so when we talk about our spiritual death, God speaks the language of resurrection. He is the one with the power to make alive, and he is the one who uses that power. Even when we were dead, he made us alive. There are no other agents involved. Put another way, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul goes back to the language of creation. Did the light cooperate with God when he said, let light, let there be light? There was no light. Light came into existence by the words of God. Paul is saying the same reality is true of your spiritual life. God gave you spiritual life by the words that he has spoken to you in the gospel. You are made alive. You are given the spiritual life that you lack because God creates it in you. It is entirely his power and his work. We can see the example in in John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus. Did Lazarus take the first step and then God said, come out? No, Jesus said, come out. And the life that Lazarus needed to respond to that command was put in him by that word and Lazarus stepped. That is how it happened. The power of that life was given 
so that that person could respond. The story of Lazarus shows what God does in all of us, in our spirit. Finally, we see in the second point, the purpose of our salvation is to just demonstrate God's immeasurable grace alone. Paul says, by grace you have been saved. There isn't anything else added there. It's by grace and nothing else you have been saved. By grace, this is the sole means of our salvation. Saved is in the perfect passive, and I know that's a a Greek thing, but that means that it was done entirely by him, and it was completed entirely in the past. Paul even speaks of our being seated with Christ, meaning that it is certain. Your salvation, your life is so great that you can already now count yourself seated in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. We see that this is for all time, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I love this quote from Bruce's commentary, F.F. Bruce. He says, it implies one age supervening on another like successive waves of the sea, so far into the future as thought can reach. Throughout time and in eternity, the church, this society of pardoned rebels, is designed by God to be the masterpiece of his goodness. In Christ Jesus, we have all of this in Christ Jesus. The measure of grace is that all that is Christ's, God's perfect and beloved Son, is also ours who are saved by him. Christ bore our wrath so that in him we might share in his glory. Not a diminished part of it, but all of it. He is seated in the heavenly places, and so are we. We are given all that he has, and we will share in it for all eternity. What grace is this? What grace is this to go from a child of wrath to seated in the heavenly places next to Christ? Could you paint a larger salvation? Could you hope a larger hope? Could you go from more despair to more glory than what God has done by grace alone in this gospel? Amen? Third, we are saved because God does it all. God does it all. Verses 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have seen that we grace alone means we are doomed in ourselves. We have seen that grace alone means that we are saved entirely by God's will. Finally, we see that grace alone means we are saved because God does it all. Our salvation is entirely God's gift. God supplies to us what he requires from us. It says here we are saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Now there's a lot of discussion on this verse. There's a question about, does the word this refer to faith? Or maybe does the word this refer to saved? Grammatically, the best understanding is that this, the word this, refers to saved through faith. 
the entire clause. So as we see it referring to the whole phrase saved through faith, we must reckon what it says here, that our faith is part of God's grace. That challenges a lot of the preaching and a lot of the presentation of the gospel that we are used to. But it appears very clear that faith cannot be separated from what is given to us by God's grace, by, by how this is written. There are four reasons I want to give you to consider. If faith is not included in what Paul is saying here, then Paul's comment is completely superfluous. By grace you have been saved, take out the word faith, and this is not your own doing. Well, duh. We don't need to be told that by grace we have been saved is God's doing. That's already clear. The only thing in that phrase, the only thing in that statement that may raise a question is, well, where does this faith come from? Paul wants us to know that that too is part of your salvation by grace. Second, we can see that if faith is not a part of grace, then Paul's entire argument has been undermined. It is at this point simply not by grace that we are saved, but God's grace plus my faith. Do you think as we have followed through this argument that Paul is wanting at the very climax of his celebration of the grace of God to tell you, but also something outside of grace called your faith saves you? That seems very opposite to what Paul is trying to say contextually. So no, that can't be the case. Third, we have to ask ourselves, if we're taking Paul seriously, where could faith come from given our state in verses 1 through 3? If we are truly dead like he says we are dead, then how can we respond to a spiritual thing like the gospel? If we are going to give Paul's words weight there, we must say grace must bring faith, not the other way around. And finally, I'd like to personalize this question. Why do you believe, but others don't? Why do you have faith in this gospel, while other people whom you respect and love, whom you see as very capable in their job and their decision-making skills, don't? Is it because you're smarter, more virtuous? Is it because you're more clever, more wise? The fact of the matter is, if there is any reason for why you believe that is other than by God's grace, you have something to boast in. You have something to boast in if it's not by grace that you believe. And verse 9 tells us this is so that no one can boast. So I think we must see that God provides the very thing that he requires. The point of all this is faith does not bring us into God's grace. God's grace brings us into faith. Amen? Finally, our salvation is God's masterpiece. In verse 10, we are told that we are his workmanship, literally his creation. Second, we see that the works that we bear are the works that he prepared for us beforehand. And when we see the words beforehand referring to God, we are talking about eternity past. So what, what this last verse tells us is that we are his work from beforehand, eternity past, all the way through the coming ages, which is eternity future. 
Our salvation from beginning to end is God's grace alone. Amen? What does it mean to say that we are saved by grace alone? It means we are doomed to save ourselves. We are saved entirely by God's will. And we are saved because God does it all. Does God's grace amaze you? The point of grace alone is that you are far more lost, far more sinful, far more hopeless than you have realized. However, if the, in the gospel you discover you are far more loved than you'll ever be able to fathom. When we grasp God's salvation by grace alone, that God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive, we can no longer look at the gospel as something that fits into our lives. It is not something that we control. It is something that controls us. We can see the power of grace alone when we consider the story of Lazarus, who is a physical picture of the resurrection that happens to each of us when God saves us by his grace. What would Lazarus's testimony be after he came out of that tomb, after he sat there and experienced this new life? Perhaps he would say something like this, Once I was dead, but now I am alive. Praise God. I am alive because Jesus made me alive. Every breath I take is his. Every minute I live is his. Every work I do is because of him and for him. Because I was dead and now I am alive by his grace alone, I am entirely his alone. I live by his amazing grace. So as we finish, have you put any limitation on God's grace? Have you placed any restriction upon letting God be God in the gospel? If God's grace doesn't amaze you, there is something you're refusing about God's grace. Ask him to do a new work in you. Ask him to remove the blinders of your eyes so that you can see afresh his grace that has made you his creation to display the immeasurable riches of his kindness. When your heart is filled with this grace, you will live a life that is anything but ordinary. Finally, because God makes us alive who were dead, the good news is that there is no one who is lost, who is too far lost to be saved by this gospel. If you are hearing this message today, God is working on your heart. He is calling you now to have his gospel and to know the power of his grace. Respond to him. Call out to him to save you. As surely as he has raised Jesus from the tomb, he will raise you from the death of all of your sins and make you alive eternally with him. Cry out, save me, Jesus. He is faithful. He will do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Your grace is immeasurable, it is infinite, and I know that even now, even today, we have only scratched the surface. We can swim in it for eternity and still find new things to praise you for about it. Father, I pray that you would lift our eyes from the, the ways of the world from the deceptive lies of the evil one, from the tricks of our mind and our flesh, which are still caught up in so much fleshly desire. 
And let us gaze upon the immeasurable riches of your grace. Let us see, Father, the power of your grace which can save us from any sin, from any transgression, that can make what is dead alive. And, Father, let us live in the power of that life. Let us have a testimony of amazing grace where we recognize that everything that we do, every breath that we have, every joy in our heart, every good thing that we do is a gift from you that is from your grace through us. And let us praise you from this day to the next. Make our hearts alive with your grace. And so we pray, Father, the prayer that your Son has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.